Hello, this is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom podcast. Last time, I promised that in this podcast, I would bring you a story, not about me, but about someone else, a story that illuminates the issues of our time, the issues of social justice, the slippery concept of equality, the ambiguity of methods to bring about change, and also just an amazing life story. The story is grounded in Texas where I live, but it is a story that stretches way back in time and also extends into today's social issues. Here it is. It begins when news of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation came to Texas on June 19, 1865. Texas, a Confederate state, was occupied by that time by Union forces. So when word came of the Emancipation Proclamation, the Union officials in charge in Texas announced to the slaves living in Texas that they were free, free to go. Where? To do what? Uncertain. It was said at the time that Lincoln had plans for Reconstruction, what to do with the freed slaves, but Lincoln was soon dead, assassinated. In Texas, it was tense. The terms of Reconstruction were being worked out in Washington, which was in chaos. Time passed. The emotional and physical turmoil was great on all sides, and the violence continued. But eventually, in attempting to put back together the Union, the United States government set up minimum requirements for readmission to the Union, and since slavery was now prohibited under federal law, Texas had to change its state constitution. So a constitutional convention was held in Texas in 1866. At this convention, supervised by the Union troops, ten African Americans served as convention delegates, much to the consternation of Confederate-minded white Texans. According to the record, as the revised Constitution was being discussed, five of those black men refused to agree to the new Constitution that was being drawn up, believing it was too lenient toward the previous Confederate government in Texas, but it passed anyway. It granted African-American men some limited rights, including the right to own and transmit property, and the right to testify orally in any court case involving other African-Americans, but not whites. And, of course, it did not allow any African-American the right to vote or hold public office. Well, that didn't meet the new federal requirements, making it necessary for Texas to hold another constitutional convention two years later, again closely supervised by federal, federal authorities. Of the 106 delegates this time, there were 24 African Americans, along with the rest of the non-blacks who were on all sides of the questions of Reconstruction. I can imagine the heated debate that went on. Dangers of reversion to previous ways of doing things was discussed. Need for reconciliation was even discussed. 
but the convention deadlocked. So the federal officials in charge of Texas at the time gathered up the pages of the bill as it stood and put it up for a vote by the Texas citizens. It was ratified, but only, no doubt, because those with Confederate sympathies were barred from voting. How that was done, I'm not sure. In that Constitution, the equality of all men before the law was recognized. Black men could vote, and all qualified voters, including blacks, could be qualified jurors. Obviously, that Constitution sparked much controversy among political and social factions in Texas, particularly among those, I'm sure, who had not been allowed to vote. There was bitterness, though, on all sides, even within families who disagreed with one another. Most Texans at the time now had no slaves, nor had any intentions of getting any, and they themselves were often impoverished and, in their own view, underprivileged. But even those people agreed with the majority of other whites' views of things, which was that the federal government had no right to decide who could vote. They thought that was a local state's right. After all, before joining the Union originally, Texas had been its own nation. So everyone waited, many sullenly silent, some secretly violent, others no doubt uneasy, waiting for those Yankee soldiers to go home. So there was no reconciliation. Black people had new rights if they could keep them. For a while, some black men served in the new Texas state government. The federal officials had seen to that. But the groundwork for Jim Crow was already well on its way. By 1890, there was only one black person to serve that year in the Texas legislature. His name was Edward Patton. He was elected from Evergreen, Texas, a district some miles north of Houston at that time. He was a farmer and a teacher, and his legislative history mostly involved those issues. He voted against having a poll tax enacted. He voted for a bill banning interracial marriage. He served only one term. Then from 1897 to 1966, 63 years, there were no blacks in the Texas legislature. But in 1966, a hundred years after that first constitutional convention in Texas after the Civil War, when black men first were delegates there, in 1966, three black people were elected to the Texas legislature. Curtis Graves, Joe Lockridge, and a black woman, Barbara Jordan, who, as it happens, was a great-great-granddaughter of Edward Patton, that black man from Evergreen who had served in the legislature way back in 1890. It's amazing, really, that Barbara Jordan won that seat in the Texas Senate. 1966 was a bloody year in the civil rights movement in the United States and, of course, in Texas. It was one year after the Bloody Sunday march in Selma, Alabama, and it was one year after Malcolm X was assassinated. It was the year James Meredith embarked on a march against fear 
as it was called, from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi, to encourage Mississippians to register to vote. And in Mississippi, Meredith was shot. In Chicago, Martin Luther King that year was hit in the head with a brick during a march in a white neighborhood. Needless to say, Texas, like the rest of the country, was caught up in the violent controversies of the time. So how did these three black people get elected in conservative Texas? Well, again, the federal government was involved, this time the courts, Gerrymandering districts in Texas to accomplish certain political purposes has always been a fine art, and that had been one of the ways blacks had been kept out of office. But federal courts had, by 1966, mandated redistricting in Texas, demanding that more reasonably drawn districts that were fair and appropriate to the geography and citizenry in every area be created, and so Of course, some of those districts that were redrawn turned out to have a majority of black voters. That was particularly true in a section of Houston that was predominantly black. So Barbara Jordan ran in one of those districts in Houston and won, defeating a white liberal and becoming the first black woman ever elected to the Texas legislature. Barbara Jordan's story is worth looking at in today's climate of Black Lives Matter. Many younger people today, I'm sure, haven't heard of her. But the complexity of her life and of her way of approaching social justice bears scrutiny. Others have written about her, I know, but I'm going to give it my own recap here for my own purposes Barbara Jordan's father was a Baptist minister and a warehouse clerk. Her mother, of the Patton lineage, was a maid. Barbara was an excellent student back in her all-black high school classes. When she graduated, she enrolled in the all-black state college in Houston, Texas, Texas Southern, that had just been established recently to keep from integrating the University of Texas. Barbara Jordan graduated from Texas Southern in 1956, magna cum laude, the same year, incidentally, that the University of Texas was finally willing to allow black students to enroll for the first time. But Barbara Jordan went north for law school instead of going to UT. She got her degree from Boston University School of Law. No doubt while in Massachusetts in law school, she enjoyed more opportunities as a black person than she had in Texas. But after getting her law degree, she did move back to Houston to open a law practice, working temporarily out of her parents' home and supplementing her income, working as an administrative assistant to a county judge there in Houston. She involved herself in the entanglement of Texas local politics. She worked in the Kennedy campaign for president and in that way became known to Lyndon Johnson. And eventually, as I said, after redistricting made it possible in 1966, she did make her historic race for the Texas Senate. I campaigned for Barbara Jordan that year. I was involved to some extent in the civil rights movement in Houston where I lived and in the women's liberation movement of the time, too. I was 27 years old then. 
working at the University of Houston as editor of publications. And that year I published an issue of the alumni magazine focused on poverty and power and racial inequity. I was white and, yes, privileged in that regard, I guess, so I didn't live in the part of Houston that Barbara Jordan lived in or share her experiences, but I was passionately concerned about injustice. So I showed up at her campaign headquarters, willing to help, doing whatever I was asked to do. So after a while, when they got to know me, when I was asked to do so by Barbara Jordan's campaign, I made speeches for her in her district, one of them being one night in the Fifth Ward before a gym full of mostly black people. I remember well trembling with excitement and, yes, some fear as I admitted to that crowd that as a white woman, I was not in a position to speak for black justice in the way that one of them could, but that what I could do was to say, not on behalf of all white people, but on behalf of many, that I joined with them in the struggle for justice, for equality, for blacks, and also for women, and I was there urging them to support a black woman, Barbara Jordan, for the Texas legislature. As I said, Jordan won that election to the Texas Senate. When the legislature assembled in Austin that year, the other 30 senators, male, white, (laughs) received her coolly. The courts had made rulings about redistricting, but the minds of most people hadn't instantly changed. And Barbara Jordan had to decide how to chip away at the prejudice and the ingrained attitudes in order to function at all in the legislature. As the Texas Monthly Magazine later wrote, quote, Since no black face had been seen in the Senate chamber since 1882, and since that body had its share of unreconstructed Southerners, there was still a certain period of adjustment, shall we say, end quote. Jordan herself said later, the Texas Senate was touted as the state's most exclusive club. To be effective, I had to get inside the club, not just inside the chamber. How did she do it? What characteristics of hers made a difference for Barbara Jordan? allowing her to be effective as she was in her lifelong struggle for equality and justice for herself and her people. She herself tells us in a later remark, she said, If you're going to play the game, you better know the rules. Know the rules she did, the parliamentary rules of the law and the legislature, and by that time, the rules of the political game as well. She said, I singled out the most influential and powerful members of the Senate Club, and I determined to get their respect. (laughs) The Texas Monthly um, magazine, um, on which I've leaned heavily for my remarks here in this podcast, uh, they gave a report about what happened right after Barbara Jordan was elected, about how it was back then, and I This is a long quote, and I'll tell you when the quoting's done. It reads, quote, 
Back then, it was traditional for Claude Wilde Sr., the humble oil lobbyist, to give a little dinner dance for the Senate before the session began. Wilde thought he had a bit of a problem, so he called Don Kennard, a liberal senator from Fort Worth who was rumored to know a few blacks personally. Kennard tells the story. Don, Wilde said, I've got a little dilemma with Senator Jordan. What's that? Kennard asked. Well, it's about Senator Parkhouse and Ms. Parkhouse, not to mention some others. What if Senator Jordan brings along a big black man from Houston? How will everybody react? What if her date tries to dance with Ms. Parkhouse? What then? <laughs> Continuing to quote here, Texas Monthly says, They were breaking new ground, and no one knew what ha- would happen. Kennard recalls, says, The Texas legislature was breaking new ground, and no one knew what would happen, so my wife and I invited Barbara to go to Wilde's dinner with us. Within three minutes after she arrived, she had charmed everyone and was the center of the stage just by being so gracious and charming. She literally compelled even the biggest racists to be gracious and charming, too. It started that night, really. She obviously respected people and didn't make them feel evil or guilty, and they had never been confronted with an intelligent, imposing, witty black person before, so they warmed to her. I know it sounds silly looking back at it these years later, but those were different times. She was the first, and she ended up beating all of us at our own game. End quote. The game, of course, was politics. In another place, Texas Monthly reported, again, another long quote here, quote, Jordan studied the Senate's procedure so closely that within weeks she was recognized as one of its leading parliamentarians, not above using, as she puts it, the trickers' tricks. Among politicians, political skill is respected apart from ideology, and Jordan quickly demonstrated that she had great technical skills, She only spoke when she knew what she wanted. She didn't preach or harangue. She concentrated on a few subjects and became the Senate expert on them. She never embarrassed a fellow senator. She always gave the impression she understood his political situation, and she left him room for self-respect. She proved to be a hard-nosed politician. Incidentally, one of the other two black persons elected that same year with Barbara Jordan in 1966, Curtis Graves, was very different from her. When Graves got to the legislature, he made clear he was interested in black issues and woe-be-died white racists. As the 60s continued to unfold, Graves started talking of honkies and the oppressor. Texas Monthly says the contrast with Jordan could not have been more direct. Graves was passionate and impulsive. She was aloof and calculating. He was angry. She was conciliatory. He made whites feel personally guilty for the sins of segregation. She emphasized common problems. He would have nothing to do with the establishment while she courted it. End quote. Barbara Jordan, instead of having Graves' aggressive tactics, walked a sort of tightrope between extremes, I think, making the white establishment think that she was helping keep blacks in line and 
on the other hand, making black supporters think she was manipulating the establishment all the time, getting the work done that she wanted to get done. Curtis Graves would later run against Barbara Jordan for Congress. He attacked her, calling her a tool. It was a tough campaign, an unprecedented battle between two prominent black politicians. Barbara Jordan never attacked Graves and simply repeated that the issue was who could get things done, who's more effective. She received 80% of the vote. Graves left Texas for good. Now, Jordan's emphasis about who can get things done is one of the reasons I'm telling you all this. All through her life and career, Barbara Jordan, by all accounts, believed in getting things done in accomplishing what needed to be done, and also in being sure it stayed accomplished. She saw that people like Sam Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson, both from Texas, got things done, whatever it was they wanted to get done. So she adopted their practical skills, but she also kept to her own core purposes, shall we say. And with her own life experience, she understood the black side of the issues at hand, and for practical reasons of getting things done for herself and her black constituency, she worked together with those who disagreed with her. She sought to bring people together. She worked for reconciliation in order to get things done. She knew that to have any lasting equality, what was done had somehow to take in all sides of every equation and work it out, and take in, too, the long and the short view of things. So, of course, she was criticized on all sides from some white conservatives who thought her too black and too liberal and from liberals and some black activists among them who thought she was too incremental and that she was a tool of the establishment. But she kept getting elected and getting things done. She received 80, 90, 100% scores on all of the tallies kept by black, liberal, feminist, and environmentalist groups, voting virtually down the line with black issues. But she was no ideologue. As the Texas Monthly reported, quote, she approached issues one at a time, and she took her allies where she found them in her three regular sessions in the Texas legislature, she introduced more than 150 bills and resolutions, about half of which were the political meat and potatoes of legislation, but the rest were solidly liberal, extending the minimum wage to cover non-unionized farm workers and domestics, a Fair Labor Practices Act, pollution control, a whole range of workmen's compensation acts, equal rights, and anti-discrimination. She fought for liquor by the drink and against extending the sales tax. As one liberal legislator said, quote, Even though Barbara was with us on almost every critical issue, somehow you never could assume she would be. If you had a real good bill, you know, that did everything right, that had in it all the sorts of things that she had been supporting, you still couldn't just check off her vote on your scorecard. You had to go see her, reason with her, make her understand what you wanted to do. She always ended up in the corral 
but damned if she didn't have to be rounded up every time. When a political opponent remarked that she was working to become one of the boys' club of the Senate, she put up with the criticism. She even participated in the good old boys' club and used it. She would joke with them, drink with them, stay up late, play the guitar, and sing songs with them. Her friend Andrew Jefferson said, Barbara listens to the establishment about their problems, and she takes the time to understand, for example, the natural gas shortage. She won't oppose them just because they're the establishment. But when it comes down to some long-standing principle of her own, she can be counted on to help the establishment understand it, just as she tried to understand their energy problems. She gets leverage that way, and she's not afraid to use it. The result of all of this is at the end of her legislative session in the Texas Senate, her colleagues unanimously passed an unprecedented resolution expressing the Senate's, quote, warmest regard and affection. The 30 men rose and gave her two standing ovations. Their resolution said, in part, quote, she has earned the esteem and respect of her fellow citizens by the dignified manner in which she conducts herself, and because of her sincerity, her genuine concern for others, and her forceful speaking ability, she has been a credit to her state as well as her race. To call a black person a credit to his race in those emotion-charged years was patronizing to be sure, and probably unacceptable to some. Barbara Jordan took it for what it was and gave it back in kind. She later said, apparently unambiguously, I have not been treated with any more respect by any group of men anywhere. In Texas, the president pro tem of the Senate is technically a ceremonial position, but it's a legal position too because the president pro tem serves as acting governor whenever the governor and lieutenant governor are both out of the state. So in March of 1972, despite whatever misgivings the white male Texas legislators had had at the beginning of Barbara Jordan's being elected, they elected Barbara Jordan president pro tem of the Texas Senate, making her the first black woman in America to preside over a legislative body. And in seconding the nomination, one of Jordan's male colleagues on the other side of the chamber from her stood, spread his arms open, and said, What can I say? Black is beautiful. The Texas Senate had been impressed, as one of them said, by her deference to leadership, loyalty to the institution, hard work, humor, and unwillingness to be typecast all wrapped up in the power and mystery of her personality and topped off with that old standby her voice, which could either create an easy intimacy or intimidate, seemingly at will. Jordan's voice, that deep, resonant voice, any of us who ever heard it never forgot it. She, without doubt, got her voice from her father. Texas Monthly writes again, hit this long quote, Reverend Jordan, remember her father was a Baptist minister, Reverend Jordan's churches were solidly missionary and fundamentalist, the churches that had for 300 years promised black Americans salvation from a world of tears and travail. 
On Sundays, Barbara and her two older sisters would get up behind their father after his sermon and sing gospel music, the old-fashioned kind where they clapped and swayed and affirmed the joyous promise of their religion. The father prided himself on speaking correctly in full, rounded, unaccented tones. To him, correct speech was a mark of good preeding and class, and he insisted his daughter speak correctly. The common assumption that Jordan developed her speaking style at Boston University Law School could not be more wrong, says Tom Friedman, her debate coach at Texas Southern University. She had it in the cradle, he said. She did get a little JFK cadence in her voice from Boston, I guess. Andrew Jefferson, her friend, said, Those of us who knew her well noticed a little extra when she came back from Boston, a sort of embellishment, a little frosting on the cake, so to speak. But as far as Jordan herself was concerned, she said, I don't have an accent. I just talk like me. I've talked this way as long as I can remember. (laughs) Texas Monthly continues, Jordan's attitude is disingenuous, at the least, since her voice is much of her image. It underscores her aloofness and dignity. It lifts her beyond region. It masks any fuzzy thinking or lowly ambition, and it scares hell out of people. On hearing it for the first time, one odd young woman said, I turned on my television set and I thought I was listening to God. (laughs) It sounds, as Congressman Andrew Young of Georgia says, like the heavens have opened up. The religious parallels are apt because the voice is an evangelical voice a voice designed to bring to the fold the presence of the Lord. For that voice, for much of her ambition, and for her exacting standards of excellence, she can thank her father, end quote. A few years later, Jordan ran for and won a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. The Texas Senate, flush with affection for her, decided on the unprecedented step of commissioning her portrait to hang in the Texas Capitol, alongside portraits of Davy Crockett, Sam Houston, Lyndon Johnson, and Jefferson Davis. Texas Senator Chet Brooks, when the portrait of Barbara was being painted, said to Jordan, Senator, the only thing missing in this portrait is your voice. Without your voice, it just isn't you. Jordan, in reply, said, Senator, These walls have been needing a touch of color, and when my painting hangs amid the august people on the walls of this chamber, believe me, it's going to (laughs) talk. Close quote. Jordan did win that seat in the U.S. House of Representatives during the year when she and Andrew Young of Georgia became the first African Americans in the 20th century elected to Congress from the Deep South. Lyndon Johnson, who had followed Jordan's career closely, arranged for her to have a seat on the powerful Judiciary Committee. And so it was that two years later, Barbara Jordan was there to give the 15-minute opening statement of the Judiciary Committee's historic hearing to decide whether or not to impeach Richard Nixon. I watched on television with pride and care. As she spoke, 
noting in her remarks that while the U.S. Constitution had not initially included African Americans in its we the people phrase, nor were its checks and balances designed to prevent abuse of power against her people, nonetheless she said she strongly believed in the Constitution, insisting, My faith in the Constitution is whole. It is complete. It is total. And I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. Oh, how I long for such courage and commitment by our Congress people today. While in the U.S. Congress, Jordan tirelessly worked on civil rights issues, but she also worked on legislation promoting women's rights. She supported the Equal Rights Amendment, and she co-sponsored a bill that would have granted housewives Social Security benefits based on their own home domestic labor. In 1975, when Congress voted to extend the Voting Rights Act of 1965, she sponsored legislation that broadened the provisions of the act to include Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, and Asian Americans. As I said, she was never narrowly focused. She interacted continuously with House members from both sides of the aisle. She often sat near the aisle, near where the other side of the opposition sat, so she could talk to them across the aisle, get to know them better, be more familiar to them. As the House of Representatives website history section says about Barbara Jordan, she was reluctant to commit herself fully to any one interest group or caucus, even the Congressional Black Caucus, of which, of course, she was a member, or the House women who met informally. Quote, she was especially careful not to attach herself too closely to any agenda she had little control over that might impinge on her ability to navigate and compromise within the institutional power structure. She worked within that power structure, and she considered each issue on its own workable merits. She introduced civil rights amendments to legislation authorizing law enforcement assistance grants. And although she voted for busing to enforce racial desegregation in public schools, she was one of the few African-American members of Congress to question the utility of that of that policy, whether it would work or not. Jordan herself said, I am neither a black politician or a woman politician. I'm just a politician, a professional politician. The Texas Monthly remarked, quote, The symbolic dimension of Barbara Jordan's achievement was to link the troubled past with a hopeful future to bridge from a segregated society to an unsegregated one. She's been called Aunt Jemima by both her friends and her enemies, and although she doesn't like it, the metaphor is apt. In appearance, she conjures up the common memories of a culture. She is every black maid, black cook, black mammy. The awesomeness of Barbara Jordan's presence is rooted in her explicit destruction of that image 
as if every black mammy and Aunt Jemima has risen up with her rolling pin to take over the world. Barbara Jordan gave the keynote address at the 1976 Democratic National Convention, another first for African-American women, and a speech that made her famous with even more Americans. Health considerations largely influenced her decision when she finally decided not to run again for Congress. She came home to Texas then to teach, to become the Lyndon B. Johnson Centennial Chair of Public Policy in 1982, and Texas Governor Ann Richards made her special counsel on ethics. Over the years, Barbara Jordan had so many honors I can't name them all in this short podcast, but they included Best Living Orator, one of the 25 most influential women in America, Time Magazine's Woman of the Year, and she was the recipient of the gold medal of the National Conference of Christian and Jews for, quote, courageous leadership in governmental, civil, and humanitarian affairs. President Bill Clinton awarded her the Medal of Freedom in 1994. Finally, breaking barriers even in death, Barbara Jordan became the first African-American to be buried among the governors, senators, and congressmen in the Texas State Cemetery. So these days, as I'm listening to voices memorializing George Floyd raised in Houston's Fifth Ward, which Jordan had represented back in her day, I can almost hear in my memory the deep, clear voice of Barbara Jordan, who believed fiercely in working for equality for all people and who understood how to get things done and how important reconciliation is. Is it possible? Is it possible that we can all listen to each other's perspectives enough, be open-minded enough, be forgiving enough and diligent enough and compassionate enough to make that happen? Later in her life, Barbara Jordan asked that question here in Texas at a symposium of another famous black woman, Maya Angelou. Jordan said, Now I wonder, Maya, given our blackness and what we have experienced from the majority community, do you think that you and I can ever cut through that experience and find reconciliation and, and love, which we've talked about here? Is our perception going to be forever clouded by the black experience, or is it possible to cut through it? My Angelou responded in part, Now, if I were weeping and I were Chinese, I would be weeping as a Chinese, yes, and as a human being, finally. I would not release or relinquish one iota of my own black experience, and I would have to speak through my experience, always pressing toward that statement, I am a human being. Nothing human can be alien to me. Angela continued, All of us, faced with bafflement at our own smallness in this expanding vast universe, at our inability to control the rain, drought, earthquakes, or our fears, we wrestle as best we can with concepts which are larger than our present capacity to embrace. 
Our poets, preachers, priests, imams, rabbis, scholars, and honest folk inform us. In the words of the great black poet James Weldon Johnson, Son, your arm's too short to box with God. So, my Angelou says, I just want to come through it and to see all human beings as my brothers and sisters. That, I think, was Barbara Jordan's broad-lifed work, to work for equality for all, to see all as her brothers and sisters. So again these days, I've been hearing her deep voice in my ears and remembering her amazing story and the powerful influence she had on me during a time in my own life when it was all too easy to despair that change would ever come. As the Texas Monthly said of her, to a country racked with the longest war in its history, torn by racial division, unsure of its institutions and its future, she furnished clear hope. A southern woman from the race of slaves, she dramatically affirmed, in spite of slavery, civil war, and segregation, her faith in our original ideals. Barbara Jordan herself said about bringing people together, There is no executive order, there is no law that can require the American people to form a national community. This we must do as individuals. And if we do it as individuals, form that national community, there is no President of the United States that can veto that decision. She felt moral outrage, to be sure, and she said so. But she used her moral outrage, I think, surgically, not only speaking up to power, but operating on it, on the power structure, with her own special skill and understanding to create the changes that she believed so passionately in and to see that they were lasting changes. She believed in the founding principles of the Constitution, and she fought always to have them apply in real life to all people, including her own. I leave you with her words, quote, We must not become the new Puritans and reject our society. We must address and master the future together. It can be done if we restore the belief that we share a sense of national community, that we share a sense of national community, that we share a common endeavor. It can be done. It can be done. I believe that too. So until next time, when I will bring you another in this series of stories on this subject of social justice, equality, and the ambiguity of means to achieve it, this is Glenda Taylor. Join me at any time on the oneandallwisdom.com website.